HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. The future of farms is the future of food. No Farms, No Future is a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Listen today. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out with me, your host and tour guide, Capri Cafaro. Our show this hour is all about the Amata colonies in Iowa. You may have never heard of these seven villages, collectively referred to as the Amana colonies, but I guarantee after hearing their story, you'll want to discover more about them for yourself. German settlers came to the United States in the 19th century on a mission to preserve their religious freedom. From that commitment, the Amana colonies were born. Today, the Amana colonies showcase their German heritage and communal way of life through festivals, culinary practices, agricultural production, and the arts. We're joined by two guests who will give us a glimpse into life the Amata Colonies way. Dana Jensen, events and social media manager for Amata Colonies Festival Incorporated, paints a colorful picture of everything the Amata Colonies has to offer to visitors and locals alike. But first, we welcome John Childers, the executive director of the Amana Heritage Society to explain the history of Amana and how it remains relevant to modern day life. John, thank you so much for joining the program. We're happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. So um, a lot of folks may not be familiar with the Amana colonies. I just recently became aware of uh, your unique community um, and its history. So um, let's start out by talking about, uh, you know, how did the Amana colonies start um, and, and what makes the, its history so special? Well, um, first off, we are essentially a religious group, and we were founded uh, in 1714 in Germany in the province of Hessen. We're a pietist group. Um, the pietistic movement started in 1675, and a small band of these people all had similar beliefs, and they went around to pietist enclaves all over in Germany um, and, and built up 
sort of this outside of regular church membership. You were either right a, a Catholic or you were a Lutheran in Germany. And at that time, there were starting to be these small splinter groups, and we were one of them. If you fast forward then to the 1840s, um, the group was not very large, maybe six, seven, eight thousand at the most. And a number of them decided that, hey, we don't want to live in Germany anymore because we really can't. There's renewed religious um, intolerance and so forth. So they decided to live a communal lifestyle in America. So we came first starting in the 1840s uh, to upstate New York by Buffalo and then um, dissolved that whole community. It was called the Ebenezer Society and then moved out here to Iowa uh, beginning in 1855. And most all the people that were in Ebenezer had sold everything off there and made it out here by about 1863, 64. And then people continued to come from Germany. So essentially being a communal religious society, people self-selected to be members of this. And they wrote for membership and, and asked to be members here for until about the 1890s. But essentially they went to church 11 times a week together. They farmed the land together. Um, everybody had uh, jobs that were assigned by the, the church elders who were also the trustees of the business side of things. And they all decided uh, that they would eat together. They had uh, uh, five, excuse me, three meals plus two coffee breaks per day. And that was year round. Um, imagine it being like a neighborhood uh, restaurant. We are a population of anywhere from 15 to about 1800 people. And uh, imagine in these small villages, none any larger than about 450, they would um, eat in neighborhood kitchens. There's one lady in charge of the kitchen. There was a vice boss. There were three uh, young girls, so uh, starting ages 14 to about age 20, 25, until they got married, they would cook and take turns washing dishes and serving people. Then there's a small group of ladies then who would be the... Uh, who would be the, the prep ladies, and so they would prep vegetables. So there was all this uh, idea about living uh, sustainably on the land, living communally, and um, they, they lived that way until 1932 when an overwhelming vote by the community decided that they should change in order to remain a community because the, the communal bonds were and that structure was probably a little bit too rigid for what was coming up here in the 20s and 30s, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. which was a good thing because we are still um, this group here uh, that, that's still been uh, perpetuating to this day. It's uh, an incredible story and, and one that you know, the fact that it sounds like the the core value of uh, the society is about this concept of communal living and one that is carried out through, um, you know, the way that you work as well as the way that you, you know, sustain yourself both economically um, as well as, uh, you know, through food. Um, and it's my understanding that, um, you know, the, the individual villages and, and the communities um, had focused on producing, um, you know, basically agricultural products and flour and the like for their own consumption. And then I think also sold. Give me a little bit more detail on this. Okay. Uh, so essentially when they came here, they bought 26,000 acres between 1855 and 1861. And at that point, they set up seven different villages, the smallest one being about a population of 125 and the largest one being about 450. Uh, Middle of Man and Amana were the largest villages and they both had uh, woolen production facilities in them. Mm -hmm. And the one woolen mill here in Amana is still running to this day. Mm. And Amana also had a calico factory. So they were very um, into production, but they also used 
uh, agricultural inputs to be able to make those things happen for them. But all of the the seven villages that were he- that are here um, all had farming districts of about fifteen hundred acres, and so from there they uh, manage crops, uh, you know, corn and things like that, and and all of the. Th- wheat and and uh, barley and things like that and they also had uh, cattle herds they had um, they had uh, uh, pigs um, we had up to four thousand sheep at one time that supplied wool mm. for the for the woolen mills and so each village then was basically set up to be self-sustaining uh, with the exception of flour milling which the village of Amana and the village of West Amana had each had their own flour mill and they would um, grind the flour then for all seven villages and then if you go again to sort of the micro level, this this um, individual communal kitchen that was in each one of the neighborhoods, roughly, um, for instance, here in the village of Amana, where I am today, there were 16 communal kitchens. Um, in the village where I live, where I grew up, uh, middle Amana, there were nine there. And in one of the smaller villages like East Amana, there were only four uh, village hmm. kitchens there. And so if you can imagine, they had, um, uh, there was a dairy herd in each village, so they would deliver dairy there a couple times a week. They'd de- deliver flour um, a few times a month, and they would then produce food then at that site where they would, you know, they would make butter, they would make uh, three different kinds of cheeses, um, they would do some baking there, and there were village bakeries that supplied larger supplies of, of bread and different things like that throughout the year to them. So it was basically an economy uh, surrounded by agriculture, but then also producing enough for the outside world. They did produce a few uh, agricultural products that were sold out uh, outside, but also um, the woolens and the calico were used to, and, and there was also a big lumber yard and, and some other larger industries that helped foot the bill then, you know, to make the sale so they could continue this perpetuated uh, communal lifestyle. I was just going to ask as a follow-up, because I'm curious about how this actually functioned. You know, when you, it, you know, you have sort of sounds like you have two sides of this. One is for the consumption of the residents and, and the community. And the other, is, as you said, is, is for the outside. And so, you know, you would make sales of these goods to the outside. How in the in the concept of communal living would those funds be utilized? Would they be just reinvested, for example, in the flour mill, or would those funds be distributed to pay the individuals that were working in that factory? How did that work? I'm just curious. Um, essentially, everything went into a common fund, and there were different. Each different village, like Amana, had a different focus uh, than Homestead did. Homestead was our ship point. Um, so all the woolens, all the calico, all of that came in and out of that village. And South Amana, for instance, Upper South in particular, they the the uh, railway went through there beginning the 1880s. So then they mm-hmm. built about four or five um, houses up there, and they built a large lumber yard. So they would end up, uh, you know, running a lot of their a lot of their lumber in and out of that point. Um, but essentially each village then money would come into the common fund and the people were not paid in cash, but in credit. Um, so you would I go see. to your village general store. And so say, you know, we all you know lived here at, at one point before 1932, my family would have so much credit. My family might be a little bit larger, a little bit smaller than yours. So I might have 50 or $80 of credit. You might have, you know, 30 or 40 or, you know, whatever it is. And, and that money was simply used 
um, to purchase goods that were brought into the local general store. And also, if you got married, the family, then the, the new husband and wife would want, say, a sofa. They would want a piece of furniture. They would then um, go to that village uh, where they lived. They would go to the craftsperson there and say, we'd like to have a couch made. And then that would then be credited to them at the store. So there was a, a very deep accounting system here. And as a matter of fact, the communal kitchens themselves, the ladies who ran these, the communal kitchen bosses, it went up every Thursday and they would do all of their purchasing through the village general store. They would buy um, coffee and tea and, and different things like that that were not produced here. But then they would also sell um, some of their uh, some of their surplus to other villages as well. So that was all being accounted and there was no cash that was exchanged, but they were expected to at least not be in the red at the end of the year. So they would always have to do some things, you know, so in particular at, at the end of the year, but all the money, uh, you know, in, in sort of at the macro level all the money that came in went to the common fund and it was used then just to just to continue to pay the bills at, for the group as a whole um individuals are not supposed to be making money on their own in any way before we continue our conversation with john childers he was kind enough to share a recording of a hymn uh, that was at one of their church services, one that he actually was in attendance for back in 2004 at the Middle Amana Church, Middle Amana being one of the villages that comprise the Amana colonies in Iowa. Uh, as you've been hearing, uh, faith and uh, the church are very important to the Amana communities, which is why I think it's relevant to bring in uh, some uh, music, this hymn, to get a greater understanding the context of uh, the Amana community and the importance that the church plays and the importance of the German language and tradition. It's my understanding, actually, that there weren't even hymnals in English until the mid-1990s. This piece you're about to hear is uh, entitled in German, so please forgive me. Uh, German is not a language I know. Uh, it, it is called Das Abre Sorelit which roughly translates to the visible light of the sun. Take a listen. So wollen wir dann in Gottes Namen unsere Versammlung anfangen mit dem Lied Das äußere Sonnenlicht auf der Seite 106, Hymn number 115. been listening to a clip of a hymn from an Amana Colony church service from the Middle Amana Church in Iowa. And we'd been speaking with John Childers, the executive director of the Amana Heritage Society, about the history of the Amana colonies and its culture. When we return, we continue our exploration of the relationship between communal kitchens, faith, and the Amana colonies of today.
Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. This hour, we're spotlighting the unique cultural and culinary heritage of the Amana colonies in Iowa. We've been discussing how German immigrants established a communal way of living that remains relevant today. John Childers, executive director of the Amana Heritage Society, is still with us. Let's welcome him back to the show. And we are still uh, chatting with John Childers, the executive director of the Amana Heritage Society, who has been telling us about this community and its uh, deep roots in communal living in Iowa um, and dating all the way back to their inception in Germany. Uh, John, you were talking about, we were talking about kind of the communal economy as well as this concept of these communal kitchens. Uh, you mentioned how uh, the women that were running them, you know, kind of pulled their resources to get the goods that weren't produced in the community. But tell us more about how these communal kitchens worked. Um, you know, I know that there were a number in each village, but bring us into the kitchen. Give us, give us a perspective on what it might have been like, um, in, you know, prior to the 1930s. Great. Um, that's a wonderful question. And and that's probably what I'm the very best at. We do, we actually own the only intact communal kitchen that was, uh, that remains from that time, one of 55 communal kitchens that we had. Um, and I was raised in one, as a matter of fact, my great grandmother was the, um, the last kitchen boss in the home where I, where I live. Um, so essentially, as I mentioned earlier, there was one woman and her family, um, who were assigned to be, she was the communal kitchen boss. Um, in some cases, it was a mother and a and a daughter. Sometimes it was a daughter and her elderly mother who would be the the kind of the co bosses. Um, in the case of my great grandmother, it was just she. But then her her husband, my great grandfather, and her two kids then would live in a part of the house. And then um, there was another family that that lived in a different part of the house. And then the communal kitchen was basically a wing on to on this uh, residence. And it had in it a large kitchen with a hearth, and it had um, a baking oven, and it also had um had some wood stoves in it and, and a cooking stove and they had then a vice boss who would be sort of she was the second in charge I would almost call her um, a communal kitchen boss in training and all the children um, both boys and girls went to school here only until eighth grade and at that time mm. they would matriculate they would have to pass a, a, a county exam and from that point on the boys mostly ended up on the farms or if they were in one of the villages with the woolen mills they'd end up in the woolen mill for a time until they were kind of retrained or they were left 
in there according to their skills. The young girls um, then would end up going working at the communal kitchens, and they would get up every morning at you know, 4 30, 5 o'clock in the morning, go to the kitchen. Many of the kitchens had um, a hired man. Uh, this would be a non society person. There were about 400 day laborers who lived here at any one hmm. time, helping in the mills, helping. Um, as a matter of fact, the communal kitchen that we own is called the Reedy Communal Kitchen. Um, there was a, a hired man who lived upstairs in the woodshed, and he just lived in one small room. He'd get up in the morning, he'd light all the stoves for the three young girls to come in. They would start to fry potatoes or you know something like that and make the coffee and get things ready. And then by the time it was you know six o'clock or six thirty, then the villagers would be coming to that particular kitchen, the thirty to forty that were assigned to eat there. Um, in theory, we always interpret that people ate in the kitchens. Um, in practice, that was not always the case. If you had a young family, um, you were allowed to take your meals home with you. And uh, if you were taking care of elderly parents, or let's say that you lived in a, a home where there were other families living in there, it might be an elderly couple, they were no longer healthy enough to get out, you might be able to go and, and bring food to them or, or whatever. In German, they were they were always called the Heimhola, the ones who take their food home. Um, <laughs> and so they would then, the people would eat that in the morning and they really kind of carb loaded. They um, fried potatoes, they ate bread and butter, syrup, things like that for breakfast. You know, we're not talking bacon and eggs and, and anything like that. Then everybody went to work. They would then have a mid-morning uh, a break where they would have maybe some kind of um, hankes, which is this um, sort of hand-molded cheese, or they would have brick cheese or something like that, um, a piece of bread and, and some coffee. And then when it was 11.30, at least in the village where I grew up, that was uh, the dinner bell would ring about 15 minutes before that. The people then would show up for their meals at 11.30, and the three young girls had already cleaned up the breakfast dishes and, and cleaned up from serving, and they had to turn around and make the make lunch then. While at the same time, there were four or five of these prep ladies that would be uh, either sitting outside or sitting inside somewhere. They'd be prepping potatoes and um, doing green beans. They would be putting vegetables up, uh, you know, and canning and things like that. They made apple butter. They made their own butter, of course. They made the three different kinds of cheeses that, that were made here traditionally. Um, a, which, are, which are what? Um, the one is called Schmierkäse. It's like a spreadable cheese. I, I call mm -hmm. it German queso. It's it's like a, it's got a white color. It's got caraway seed in it. It's very kind of, um, with the caraway seed, gives it kind of a pungent flavor. Then there was this Hankäse that I was mentioning. Um, it's basically um, taking the curds and and mushing them together really hard, getting all the liquid on that you can and mixing them with some salt and making them into little hockey pucks that, that are uh, very similar to Gouda cheese. And then you have mm. to let them ripen. And then the final one was a brick cheese that they made and there's still brick cheese that's made in like in wisconsin i know that they carry some of those uh cheese cheeses here uh in the amanas and so they would they would produce a lot of these you know foods here um on the ground in each one of the communal kitchens and they all did have about two to three hundred chickens in them so they were you know constantly eating chicken they were um collecting the eggs and and most every every vegetable that they made they were not done the healthy way like we had like to have them today being steamed um they were typically creamed um you know in, in butter and flour and and cream and all that um and most of the, the, the ironic thing is most of our old timers lived to be very, very old in their mid 80s. Somebody passed away in their wow. mid 80s. It was kind of a tragedy. 
tragedy. So uh, most of the people were living, you know, in modern times, the ones that had lived communally were living into their 90s very easily. Um, so after lunchtime, anyway, the, the young girls would get done cleaning up afterwards, and then they'd be able to go home for a few hours before they came back at about 3.30, 4 o'clock, and they would start to either fry potatoes or make potato dumplings or do something like that. Um, the kitchen boss, the vice boss, were overseeing quite a bit of the operation, but also taking care of teaching those girls how to cook. This is what somebody had, had told me, if I can just make an aside very quickly. Most regular people, um, you know, a farm family living five miles from the Amanas in 1890 or 1920 or whatever year it was, um, young girls, if the, you know, we're, again, we're talking about traditional society, young girls were in the homes with their mothers or grandmothers or their aunts learning how to do these things in the kitchen. Of course, the boys are outside learning how to do the chores and, you know, all the, all the stuff that men are supposed to do. But in the Amanas, the young, uh, the young kids weren't seeing a lot of that. If you were going to, if you were a young boy doing a boy job someday, you weren't going to the Cooper shop. You weren't going to the blacksmith shop. You were kind of just herded around in a different way. And the young girls were not spending that much time in the kitchens. Um, so they all had to learn how to cook when they were 14. And most of the ladies who would be in my grandmother's generation said, we didn't know anything about cooking. We're 14. We graduated from eighth grade and plop, we're there in the kitchen and having to feed all these people. We had no idea what we were doing. So it always took a while for them to be able to train. And so, and so were they just going to, to regular school, so to speak, you know, uh, to the eighth grade and not as a not necessarily, you know, engaging in these kind of chores. Correct. Um, whether they're gendered chores or not, they, right. they were just basically kind of doing their thing until they're 14 and then kind of brought back into fulfilling these more traditional um work roles that, you know, may sometimes have a gender association. Yes. Now they would have gone out to onion fields as school kids and they would have they, they used the school kids a lot as labor. Um uh, so they would go. Who's and the they? Who's the they? The, the these village. Communal, the, 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 oh, the, the village. The village. Yes, because and and the the church elders ran each village. So they were both the ministers in the church, and they were also sort of the trustees of the village that were making sure everybody's getting to work and that the accounts were all paid and you know all that stuff. So every you know every spring and summer and fall when they were taking care of the onions there. I mean, there's actually a photo um, of the kids in middle of man about 1920, something like that, 1922 um, of a big row of them. And they're all out sort of cultivating the onions in these large fields that were about three or four acres large that they would, they would, they would, um, they would cultivate the onions. And later on the, the potato harvest would happen and they would use some of the kitchen girls for that. And actually some of the younger kids as well. And so they, the, the kids always had to work, but they, they weren't really learning. I mean, so I'm I'm 50, I and I didn't end up learning how to cook until I was in my early mid 20s. And you know, my wife doesn't like to cook, and I do, but I, I didn't know I didn't know how high to turn the heat on the in the pans and all that. So I mean, I can I kind of try to live vicariously through them, thinking what less would I have known at 14 than I did at 25. It took me about five years to be able to cook anything. So I kind of I kind of feel for that, you know, feel for them. Sure. And, and, um, you know, things have, some things have changed, but some things have remained in, in culturally in the community there in the Amanda villages. Um, I know that there was something, I think it was called the, the great change. Is that mm -hmm. right? Or the, yes. uh, what, what was that? And, and then what happened after the great change? So the group that wanted to become communal, um, were the grandparents and great grandparents of some of the people that were living in the teens and twenties. And there was a group of young men, and they would have become leaders regardless if they would remain communal or not. 
And the case was that most of them did remain in leadership. But in about 1926, they all sat in a room right down the street from where I'm sitting, and they were all related by blood or marriage. And they said, what do you guys see out the window? And they said, we see a couple hundred of our contemporaries no longer living in the Amanas. They were living in small towns like ours nearby. Um, some of them were living in Cedar Rapids. Some of them had moved to Davenport, Iowa, which is a large mm-hmm. German area, and and everywhere in between. And they said, you know, it isn't that they're against living communally, and it isn't that they're against um, our religious beliefs. And, and I have to say this as an aside, our communal living is has nothing to do with what our religious beliefs are. It was a way to accommodate 2,600 people coming from, from Germany, northern Switzerland, and Alsace. Yes, and so... These young men ended up um, saying, you know, we need to approach our fathers, the basically the, the trustees of the church and the communal society, and, and beg them that we need to make a change. So they went to them and they said, you know, we see all of our contemporaries. We're not going to have a society. We're not going to stay together as a community. And that was the main purpose for them to leave Germany was to remain, was to build a community and to become a community. And so they said, yes, we observe the same thing, but we're too old and don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but we don't know exactly what to do about this. Our ways are very steep in the communal ways. Most all of you have been, um, been outside. You you know, some of them were learning English, some of them were um, had attended college and, and things like that because they were going to be the next generation of leadership. So what they proposed then was to get together with a proportionate number of people from all seven villages, which and the number ended up being 47. So um, each village voted on a certain amount of, of people that created this committee then called the Committee of 47. And these were people, some of them had participated in World War I. They were pacifists, but yet we were sort of swept up into the war too as conscientious objectors. Some of them who were not living here at the time ended up getting swept up as people who went into combat. And again, we were always pacifists. Um, Some of them had, again, trained in college. Some of them had lived away for a while, just didn't like it here. And what they end up doing is getting together saying, what are our values? You know, the church, we Mm -hmm. want the church to go on as was, but what are other values? How do we make, um, if we change, how do we make it equitable for everyone? Now, originally, there were about four families that put all of their tremendous wealth into the Ebenezer Society, then eventually that transferred to the Amana Society. Well, those people, of course, were guaranteed to get their money back, but the vast majority of the 2,600 immigrants who came here had nothing. So they said, well, but these people and their parents and their grandparents all built something. So what they did is that this Committee of 47 met a number of times, and then eventually it went down to a committee of about 10. So the bigger committee was like a steering committee, and the values were this. They wanted to assure that everyone here would have a job. They wanted to assure everyone would have a home. They wanted to assure that everyone would have insurance um, and also be able to keep everybody here as a community. So once that was all started being in motion, some of those kids living outside, the 20-some-year-olds that were sort of lost and wanted to do more, they were starting to come back because they knew that things were going to change. So that was one good thing. So that committee of 10 then um, really kind of went to work, and, and they did all of this. They 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 talked to, lawyer, you know, to a particular lawyer, and that lawyer helped walk them through exactly what they needed to do. So in the end, everyone was guaranteed to live in a home. Um, there were two types of stock that were given out. One was a Class A share. The other one was a prior distributive share. The Class A share gave you a medical benefit. It also gave you uh, membership to the new Amana Society, which is still in operation mm-hmm. today. And um, it allowed you to vote for directors every year. 
So, if so let me just stop you real yep. quick right there because we're running a little bit out of we're, we're getting close to the end of our, our time together. And, uh, you know, you just mentioned that, um, the new Amana society is still in existence today. Mm-hmm. So in a little bit of time we have left, um, I, I'd like to know what remains today, almost a hundred years after the, the change, the great change in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. What remains, uh, in, in the uh, Amana colonies and, um, you know, from a cultural standpoint, spe- you know, more specifically, um, and, and how has, has some of this communal, particularly communal, um, communal kitchens, communal eating, how is that, you know, maintained as part of, uh, the culture in 21st century, uh, Amana colonies? Okay. Well, number one, again, they wanted to, the, so this whole great change happened so they could remain together as a community. Um, when I was a child growing up the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, 80 to 90% of people who lived here had a communal background. Their parents, they themselves, their grandparents, whatever, were here. So the community has remained together. Our church is still here, and it still thrives. The Amana Society Incorporated is that for-profit um, joint stock corporation that still uh, manages the business affairs. We still own 26,000 acres um, here mm. that's divided between the farmland and timberland. We've got Iowa's largest timber reserve. We're really wow. trying to get into sustainable um, agriculture, and we we have the you know a, a large methane digester that um, oh, supplies wow. power for all sixteen hundred residents. Yes, yeah. Um, and if you kind of and we do have a number of heritage businesses. Our our wool our, our woolen mill that the guys um, those four families incorporated in eighteen forty still exists. Um, we also have our Amana meat shop here, which they make our, they, they create our dinners for our communal dinners that we serve today as a museum. It has been an op- continuous operation since um, 1857. So it is still here. The Amana General Store has never closed down for a day. And there are a number of restaurants. I mean, we've got about 40 or 50 small businesses here in town. And some of the mm. restaurants that are here are actually part of um, that they were they were originally communal kitchens, so those families continued to offer dinners, but they did it for profit, and you know mm. it's, it's all family style dining now. Um, but as as far as the culture goes, again, the church remains. Um, a number of us here still speak German, you know, to this day. It's it's getting fewer and fewer all the time. Um, the Amanda Heritage Society, our organization, tries to um, keep people together. There are many, many Amanda people living throughout the, the rest of the country and some living mm. in Europe, and we try to stay together and keep those cultural ties together. Um, we have an art guild. Um, they practice a lot of folk art here, and a lot of those things, um, our, t- our latest tinsmith or last tinsmith that we've had passed away, we've got two people that are working on um, that he taught that are trying to keep that going. We have carpet oh. weavers. We have um, potters. We have the the, the whole nine yards here. And these are people that grew up here. These are people that are continuing um, those traditions. And as far as the food, I would say there's 30, 40 households that are still out of a population of 1600 that are still producing or making that that traditional food. When I was a kid, everybody made it. It was boring. Nobody wanted to have, you know, some of that old stuff. But, you know, today it's actually kind of a treat to be able to be able to have it. So we're sustaining. It's not quite at the level we'd love to have it, but there is still a lot of evidence of that original communal culture that's still here. Well, that's, I am inspired. Um, I think that's a great place for us to leave our conversation because we're also going to be joined by um, one of your colleagues from Amana as we continue our our show, uh, who's going to tell us about all the different festivals that um, 
uh, are bringing people together and continuing on some of these traditions, particularly food traditions. So, John, thank you very much for taking the time, and I certainly do hope to get a chance to go out there and visit. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks for having us. Stick around for more Eat Your Heartland Out after these messages. When we come back, our next guest is going to tell us all about the fairs and festivals that are offered year-round in the Amana Colonies. The future of farming in America is uncertain. Our farmers are aging and selling off their land. But the pandemic has revealed the importance of local farms as the national and international supply chain continues to be disrupted. I mean, it's not like most farmers have a company-sponsored retirement plan. I'm Hannah Forden, HRN's program manager, and I want to tell you about a new show. Hosted by John Piotti, the president and CEO of American Farmland Trust, and produced in collaboration with Heritage Radio Network, this is No Farms, No Future. There is a new generation of small farmers. We're here to tell their stories, share knowledge, and dig deep into the future of American farming. From land stewardship, we are losing 2,000 acres of farmland a day. The price of land is often so high that it's really hard to get started. To cracks in the supply chain. By the time I go shopping every single day, there's no meat left to feed my family. The future of farms is the future of food. Subscribe to No Farms, No Future, a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Find us wherever you like to listen. You're listening to Eat Your Heartland Out. We're now joined by Dana Jensen, Event and Social Media Manager for the Amana Colony Festivals Incorporated. Dana, we're happy that you could join Eat Your Heartland Out today uh, to tell us a, a little bit more about uh, the Amana colonies of the 21st century and everything you have to offer. So welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So it's my understanding that the Amana colonies um, have a number of festivals throughout the year. Um, give us a, a snapshot of maybe running from, you know, sort of the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Um, what's on offer? And then maybe we'll get a little bit more into detail on each one. Yeah, so we have five major festivals throughout the year, and then we have several smaller events uh, we start every year out with Winterfest right away in January, which in Iowa is a little cold, but we still have a lot of fun. They serve fire, uh, open fire chili and lots of cocoa and hot cider to keep everyone warm. Um, then we have a kind of a Valentine's Day special weekend where we do a lot of dinner specials. We have Dumpling Day in March, um, which is exactly what it sounds like, in a day for everything dumplings. Uh, in April, we have our big food festival, which is called Take a Bite. And that leads us right into MyFest, which is our second major festival. Uh, then things pick up pretty quickly from there. We have tons of different festivals throughout the summer. Uh, Worst Fest is, I mean, a colony's Worst Festival, I should say, is our biggest event in the summer. It is a day dedicated to all things bratwurst and sausage and locally made sausages at that Um and that kind of takes us right on 
through. We keep having major events. We have an Apple Festival. Uh, Oktoberfest obviously happens every year, which is our biggest festival by far. And then we finish the year off with uh, our last major festival, which is Prelude to Christmas in Tannenbaum Forest. Wow. Well, you have quite a bit um, to attract uh, tourism into your region. Uh, what kind of folks, you know, visit the Amana colonies? I mean, is it more of a regional uh, draw or, um, you know, do people come from all over the, the country or at least the Midwest? It really kind of depends on what, what we have going on in town. We certainly attract people from all over the country. Um, sometimes all over the world come here to visit. Uh, we have one of the largest Oktoberfests in the country, definitely one of the premier Oktoberfests of the entire Midwest, um, which is pretty saying a lot given that we are yeah. a small community of about 12,000 people. Um, 2021, we attracted over 60,000 people for our Oktoberfest weekend. Wow. Well, so so you mentioned Oktoberfest, and I wanted to kind of bring this up to both Worstfest and Oktoberfest um, and connect them back to, you know, kind of the, the origins and the heritage of the, of the Amana colony. So, so close that loop for, for us and our listeners. Yeah, so we are a seven German, little German villages. Uh, we were a communal society. We kind of made everything here in-house up until 1932 when we went through the great change um, and ended communal life. And so we try and bring a lot of those things back into all of our festivals. So Worst Fest and Oktoberfest, we serve bratwurst that are made here by the Amana Meat Shop and Smokehouse. They have been in operation since I believe 19, sorry, 1855, um, if I remember correctly. My, I might be off a year or two, but they've been in <laughs> operation pretty much since we've been here. A long time. Yes. Um, and they still make everything kind of, they make all your traditional mana sausages. They try new things out all the time. Um, so they're kind of our, our spearhead for both our Oktoberfest bratwurst and they're the biggest competition for our worst fest, best, worst festival, best of the worst um, competition. <laughs> they have won, I think, seven years in a row now. Um, last year, I believe it was the dill pickle bratwurst that they made that one. So they are- very stiff competition still. Uh, they they do a lot with um, our, our keeping our traditional bratwurst, our traditional food culture alive, especially regards to bratwurst and sausage making. So you know, obviously, what you're describing with these you know uh, villages, they're they're German villages, obviously settled by German immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, this is why it's always really interesting to hear these stories about. You know, how festivals in particular, you know, continue to carry on traditions and educate not only future generations, but different audiences about, you know, a community and its and its origins and its heritage and doing that through food. Um, speaking of food, again, uh, you know, this is a show about food and culture. You, dumpling Fest. And you said it's every it sounds it is what it sounds like. Everything dumplings. What like. What kind of dumplings are we talking? I mean, is this like chicken and dumplings or is this pierogies? Like what, what are we talking about when you talk dumplings in this context? Yeah, so dumpling day uh, is, this is going to be our second dumpling day ever. Um, so it started last year as a kind of a, up until last year, we had no events or festivals going on in March. And we thought we should add something in to try and get people into the Amanda colonies in one of our slower months because it's still cold in Iowa in March. Yep. Uh, 
So we added dumpling day in and it really is anything goes as long as it can be related to dumplings in some way, shape or form. Um, so we obviously offer your traditional German jump dumplings. Um, I know last year the meat shop had a Bockwurst dumpling that they sold out on because it was delicious. Um, we have <laughs> had pierogies. We've had Asian inspired dumplings. It really doesn't matter uh, kind of what culture it comes from as long as you can bring a dumpling in in some way, shape or form. So you'll notice that a lot of our restaurants will have specials going on um, with different dumplings from around the world. Wow. I mean, I, that definitely makes me want to go. I mean, who doesn't love dumplings? That's, uh, and I just, I really love the, just, uh, you know, the, it, the Amanda Colony story is so unique and one that I think is, is, you know, maybe not known by a lot of people, maybe even in the state of Iowa. So, you know, the fact that you have um, a number of these festivals that are attracting people in, um, you know, has to be, um, you know, I think really eye opening to a lot of folks that this is this, you know, community that had this communal culture for, you know, up until, you know, the early 20th century. And then, you know, things, things, you know, evolved and changed. Um, what else, you know, if, if we were to visit a, a man of colonies outside of the festivals, you know, are, are there any kind of, you know, unique, uh, attractions or, you know, cultural, experiences that, that one could uh, take advantage of in, in if the, they were going to go visit? Yeah, we have tons of different things that people can do when they come here, whether or not we have a festival going. Um, from May to October, we run historic van tours that travel around through the seven villages. Um, you hit all villages but East Amana, uh, and you get to see several different historical sites, including the last remaining communal kitchen that's still intact. Um, yeah, which is a really unique experience. You kind of get to see how they ate their meals, which is very different to what we would expect um, in most societies because everyone ate in one room. You had about 40 people crammed into this tiny little oh, wow. room. Uh, so in addition to the tours, mm -hmm. we obviously have great craftsmen here who still make things from hand. We have two furniture shops that you can actually observe oh, goodness. during the week uh, that still make everything from hand by scratch. We have the oldest textile mill and the only textile mill left in the state, which is the Amanda Colonies Woolen Mill, um, and their showroom, the Warped and Woven Mill mm -hmm. Mercantile. Um, they actually are the, I believe, the oldest business in Amana because they actually started in Germany, and they brought it all the way here to Amana. Yeah, so they've been in operation for a very long time. Um, in addition to that, we do also have uh, the oldest wow. microbrewery in the state, as well as the oldest continuously operated winery, um, which would be Ackerman. They were in 1956. Not the oldest winery in the state, but that so do, honor also goes to Amana. Well, uh, we so with with wine in in the uh, in the region, I mean, is it also inspired in by German tradition, winery, like Riesling and things of that day nature? After prohibition ended in the state, so we were very quick. We've been making wine since 1855. We were very quick to get on that um, mm -hmm. that boat and become an official winery. They unfortunately are no longer in operation. Wow, I've never heard of rhubarb wine. Yes and no. So we certainly have some wineries now that have more of your kind of what you would think of German winery, Gehurstaminers and Rieslings. Um, traditionally in Amana, there were three types of wine and it would have been rhubarb wine, which is by far our biggest seller across the board today still. There has to be strawberry rhubarb pie, right? Yes, we are known for our rhubarb wine. <laughs> um, we have actually a rhubarb festival in the summer as well, mm -hmm. um, where we spend all that time kind of hyping up the rhubarb because... Uh, in Amana, rhubarb was a major 
food source. Um, we have our own word for it. Always, there's always strawberry rhubarb pie. It doesn't matter the season. There's always rhubarb pie here in Havana. Um, but we have our own word for it called pie stingel. Right. Uh, which loosely translate from the English word pie and the German word for stock, which is stingel. And I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. German's not my my forte, but uh, it was a uniquely a mana word that meant essentially rhubarb wine and rhubarb. Um, so that has been around forever. The other two wines would have been Concord grape and Catawba grape. Well, and, and I can tell you from what I know, because I, I come from actually a wine region in Ohio, and I've done some work on uh, and some uh, research on this. I mean, the the, 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 those are exactly the grapes that kind of grow in this climate here. So a lot of times the wine is adapting in that manner. So interesting. I mean, now, what I want to know is, you know, is this something that you can go and just you just consume like you know if you are gonna go you know to um you know a winery can you tour it or is it just you know tasting or if you're gonna go to the mill is it, you know do you just purchase products or is this something that you can actually do sort of a behind the scenes you know uh tour or maybe do experience uh travel through weaving you talk about weaving um that sort of thing so um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I love experiential travel and I would love to know if those are the kind of things that you'd be able to, uh, do as well. Yeah. So in the past, I know that the Woolen Mill has offered like kind of behind the scenes tours. Uh, I know that during COVID they had to halt that. I believe that they are trying to bring it back as soon as they can. Um, but they obviously have some concerns for safety of their staff, um, and they are in a new building. Um, so you do get to see some of that experience and see the kind of looms and things. Um, I just don't know if they are currently able to offer tours, um, but that sure, is something sure. that they have done in the past and they would are are wanting to do again. Um, so there definitely is a chance for that more experiential learning. Um, the Amana Arts Guild often does classes, especially in the summer where you can learn different things. Uh, right now we have a kind of a knitting club where we're taking that kind of the woolen yarns and things like that and crocheting and knitting them that happens at one of the restaurants here in town every week where they have locals and anyone who wants to join can come and just uh knit and crochet and make little projects how cool yeah uh so there's still a big community kind of participation involved in everything that we do um we try and do as much as we can and we're always trying to add new things and more experience type options as well well, I love the fact that you're blending, you know, so, something like, you know, a a communal space like a restaurant with, you know, some of these, you know, crafts and activities. You don't really hear about something like that in, in your, you know, traditional destination. Um, what's next for the Amata Colonies? What's on the horizon? You know, um, any new festivals planned? Um, changes to your tours? Anything that you'd like our audience to know about what, what you have uh, coming up? So immediately coming up, uh, we have I'm, the biggest festival I'm working on right now is MyFest, which is um, often mispronounced as Mayfest, but it's MyFest, uh, which we have a lot of our heritage, but we also try and make that celebration a multicultural celebration of all of Iowa. So we bring oh, in different cool. dance troops. Um, I know for sure we're going to have uh, some Irish dancers. We're looking at uh, some other different dance troops to come in and share cultural dances with us, in addition to our own MyPole dancers. Um, and then we always have the world on wheels food truck that goes along rodeo that goes along with that. So we bring in different food trucks that offer a different variety of cuisine. 
um, non-German foods. The Heritage Society also does a uh, traditional kind of food stand where they serve potato pancakes and things like that that would have been served, you know, back in Germany when we were there and then also in communal times. So we always try and do things like that for MyFest and really just branch out and share the joys of all of the unique heritage here in Iowa, not just in the Amana colonies. Wow. I mean, and, and, you know, you have so much related to food. Um, and we just mentioned the food trucks and, you know, obviously you have your, your dumpling days and then worst fest. And um, I know I didn't, I want to just kind of circle back before I let you go about the Valentine's day and the Christmas time, because I feel like chocolate has to be involved in, in all of that somewhere. Yes. So we have a great little shop here called the chocolate house. Um, that's H-A-U-S. <laughs> of course. Yep. Got to stick with that German theme. They make all of their chocolate in-house and they always for Valentine's have an amazing selection. I know that they are working on fresh dipped chocolate strawberries and tons and tons of different Valentine's goodies. Um, so they are always a great place for Valentine's Day. Um, the other things that we do for, it's called Romance Weekend. It's the, the event that we do. We have um, a chocolate and beer pairing this year. Oh, wow. Um, so the the brewery has partnered with the Chocolate House to provide a little tasting flight of their beers perfectly paired with some of the Chocolate House chocolates and their truffles and their fudge and all the fun goodies. So we do a lot with um, that. And then there's always several wine dinners that go on. White Cross Cellars and the Oxshoke do a, what they call a vintner's dinner, where it's a specially prepared, unique menu yes. that's only available for that for that dinner. It's not something that the Oxshoke ever does on their regular menu. It's all brand new for just that dinner. And then they pair that with wines from the White Cross Cellars. Um, there is a chocolate and wine pairing as well as, as a cheese and wine pairing at some of our other wineries here in town, Ackerman and Fireside. So there's lots of different food experiences to have with your, your special someone. This sounds incredible, and I am so glad that we're sharing your story with our audience, who I know loves this kind of thing, learning about new cultures, new destinations, and uncovering uh, the uniqueness of, um, you know, parts of, of the American Midwest. Dana, thank you for sharing with us, and um, I, I look forward to maybe hopefully getting out there and going on one of those van tours and experiencing all that the Amanda Colonies has to offer. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.